Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome to our church podcast. As you know, we want to help you get the most out of the new year, so we've come up with a way to help you engage with our content in a unique way. It's called 90, because believe it or not, there are 90 days between January 1st and Easter. So over these 90 days, we're going to journey through the life of Jesus every Sunday and then give you a chance to dive in deeper during the week through two additional connecting points designed to challenge and perhaps change you. To find out how you can get connected and sign up for the additional content, just go to 90.today. That's 90.today, 90.today. Well, the following presentation is actually part of the 90-day content, and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Here we go. Now, if you are not a particularly religious person, or you used to be, and then you walked away from that, I am absolutely confident that you had a good reason to do so. And the reason I think you had a good reason to do so is because you're a reasonable person. So today, I want to give you a reason to reconsider faith, but more specifically, I want to give you a reason to reconsider specifically Jesus. Now, what we've said throughout this series is that Jesus came into this world to introduce something brand new. He came to introduce something brand new. This was not, he didn't come to uh, introduce the extension of something. This wasn't some kind of religion 2.0. He didn't show up to complete a book. He came to replace something and to bring something absolutely brand new to the world, but also for the world. And the part that is indisputable, the the part that you can verify is that, and this is the most amazing thing to me, is that against all odds, against all odds, a band of Jewish blasphemers who were following a dead carpenter went into the streets of Jerusalem with no territory, they had no territory, they had no military, and in the beginning, they had no sacred text. And they had the audacity to announce to their world that the final sacrifice, the final sacrifice for sin had already been made, not just for Jewish people, but the final sacrifice for sin had been made to every, for everybody in the whole world, for every generation. And that sacrifice for sin had been made right outside the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, this was crazy. I mean, it just goes right by us. But they they declared that animal sacrifice for every nation and every generation was no longer needed. Now, this flew right in the face of all Roman religion, Greek religion, Egyptian religion, and even Jewish religion. There was a sense in which the whole world could have looked at this, this little group of Jesus followers and said, hey, who died and left you in charge? A question that they actually had an answer to. Now, the most amazing thing, I mean, this, this should just make you sit up straight. 347 years later, or about 347 years later, with no territory, no authority, and no military, in the year AD 380, Emperor Theodosius I, in the, through the Edict of Thessalonica, declared Christianity the sole authorized religion of the very empire that crucified Jesus and tried to crush his movement. Unbelievable. Just 300 or so years later, the very religion, the very movement, the very person that the Roman empire crucified and the movement they tried to crush became the empire, became the religion of the empire. Now that's, that's unimaginable. But it was, it was particularly unimaginable to John the Baptist a bunch of years earlier, standing there in hip deep water. He just finished baptizing somebody. He looks up and there stands Jesus and he announces to the world for the first time, please welcome, 
You know, the look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And sure enough, over time, not that much time went by, and before long, pagan temples were being torn down because of Christianity. Other pagan temples were being repurposed to become houses of worship for Christians. And ultimately, pagan worship in the Roman Empire was outlawed. All because a group of people who declared that the final sacrifice for sin had been made outside the walls of Jerusalem and nothing could shut them up. They were, they were shoved in between the power of the temple and empire. And in the end, and in the end, they not only won an empire, in the end, their message reached all the way around the world. Unimaginable. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. So, um, yeah, so last time that, that we met, you know, previously on 90, here's where we were. Jesus had been baptized. Jesus had been tempted. Jesus had gathered a few followers. You know, we met Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And the text tells us that news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him, but everyone was praising him as a teacher. Everyone was praising him as a new rabbi with a new spin on things. Everybody was, was praising him as a prophet. They viewed Jesus as an extension of something old rather than the beginning of something new. In fact, the text says that of Jesus, they said, a great prophet, a great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help who? God has come to help his people. But Jesus had come to do a lot more than that. Jesus had come for a broader audience than that. And so very early on in his teaching, Jesus begins to drop hints that something new is coming. Jesus began to drop hints that something new is coming, that he was about to replace just about everything that was in place. He began dropping breadcrumbs. There were hints, there were parables, there was teaching. There were things that created tension with his audience, but he was so good. And he was so powerful and he would heal as he went along. So he kept the crowd, even though his teaching was so different and so new. And the Sermon on the Mount, or we call it the Sermon on the Mount, really represents a sharp curve in the road in terms of his messaging. Now, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's a title somebody gave to this particular teaching many, many years ago, but it wasn't the title that Jesus necessarily gave it. And the reason he didn't call it that is because scholars believe, New Testament scholars believe, that the content of the Sermon on the Mount is content that Jesus delivered over and over and over and over and over and over. In fact, if you took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put it together chronologically, all of that could have happened in about, you know, six months or eight months, except for the Passovers. So we know in the festivals, we know that there was a whole lot more that Jesus taught and Jesus did. In fact, John, the gospel writer, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John said, he said, look, we just scratched the surface. He says this at the end of his gospel. He said, if we had written down everything that he had done, if we had written down everything he would taught, the world would not be able to contain the books. Now, clearly this was hyperbole, but his, it was his way of saying, hey, we just gave you the highlights. So people believe and scholars believe that the content of, the, of, the, um, of this particular message, Sermon on the Mount, was something that Jesus repeated over and over and over. But here's the fascinating thing, and here's the thing we miss. This content represented his upside down, not of this kingdom, not, of the, not the kingdoms of this world worldview. 
This particular content was so contrary to everything these Jewish men and women had been taught that it was very difficult for them to get their minds around. Now, when we read it in the 21st century as English Bible readers, we miss the tension in these words. So I want to try to extrapolate some of that, surface some of that for you so you can understand what they must have thought and felt. It begins like this, and and many of you have memorized these verses perhaps as children. He said, blessed are you who are poor, which was absolutely crazy because they had been brought up with a worldview that said, God blesses the rich. And if you're rich, you're blessed by God. Besides all the patriarchs were rich. Abraham was rich. Isaac was rich. Jacob was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. How can you say that God has special favor for the poor? The poor are out of favor with God. That's what we've been taught all of our lives. He said, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Or in another case, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And this, this, was a, this was good news to the poor because they thought they had been left out of the kingdom of God. They'd been left out of the kingdom of heaven. And everything that follows in this message, every single time he gave it was completely upside down and backwards to what they had been taught since childhood. He said the meek would inherit. The merciful were blessed. The peacemakers, not the power brokers, were in God's favor. And then he said this. This is one of my favorite lines. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And think of this. For they shall see God. And there was a murmur in the crowd because blessed are the pure in heart. It's such an internal thing. We've been taught all our lives that blessed are the ceremonially clean, the ceremonial pure, those that have done the right washings, those that kept themselves from contaminated things, those that stayed away from Gentiles, those that stayed out of Gentile homes, those that never touched dead things. Those were the people that were pleasing to God. And Jesus says, no, things are changing. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart will have the ability to see and to recognize the activity and the work of God. And then he blew their minds. He said, you, you Jewish people who have chosen to follow me, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world (laughs) to which they thought, wait a minute, we're not the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We've been taught to stay away from the world. We don't dress like the world. We don't eat like the world. We don't wear their clothes. We don't eat their food. We don't marry their daughters. We don't allow our daughters to marry their sons. We've been taught since childhood that we were to stay away from all things Gentile. And now you're telling us that somehow we're the salt of the earth and we're the, the light of the world? In the same way, he said, he just kept going. In the same way, let your light, your life, shine before others. And they knew what this meant. This meant non-Jewish people. It's like, no, wait, let our lives shine beyond, you know, to non-Jewish people. We don't even like others. We, want, we don't want the others around. In fact, the reason we're hoping for Messiah is so that Messiah will come and get rid of all the others so we can have our nation back. That they may see, he just keeps going, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And they thought, we don't, We don't care if outsiders glorify our God. We want outsiders to fear our God, like the days of Joshua, when we had power, and the days of David, when people feared our king, the days of Solomon, when we were a wealthy nation. And they thought to themselves, this is not very messianic. This does not sound like Moses. This does not sound like the prophets. This is, this is new. And Jesus knew that they knew that it was new because he knew the hearts of men. And so he says, 
he, he, he anticipates this. He says, wait, 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 before we leave, do not think, do not assume, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I gotta stop here and explain something to you. If you ever read the New Testament, which I hope you do, this is big. During the first century and preceding centuries, the Jewish people did not call their Bible the Old Testament. In fact, Christians are the ones that started calling it the Old Testament. That started about 130, and about 80, 130, way long after all of this. Jewish people in the first century referred to their sacred scripture as the law and the prophets, which included all the history, included the poetry, included everything basically that we would consider the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Covenant because it wasn't old, it was the current covenant. They didn't call it the Old Testament because testament means covenant and it wasn't old. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, everybody in this region during this time, they referred to what we call the Old Testament. They just called it the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, look, I've not come to abolish your Bible. I've not come to destroy it, abolish it. I've not come to change it. I've not even come to edit it. Now, why would he say this? Why would he say, do not think that? And the reason he said that is because the things that he had said before that would lead them to think that that's exactly what he came to do. He goes on, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but, but you aren't imagining things. But you aren't hearing things. But the tension that you feel in my words, the contrast between what you grew up hearing and what I'm saying, that contrast is real. Change is coming. I'm not adding to, I am in fact replacing. I'm not gonna change what you've always been taught. I'm going to challenge you to abandon what you have been taught. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, if the Old Covenant, if the Old Testament, if the Law and the Prophets was an assignment, Jesus said, I'm here to complete it. If the Old Testament, if the Old Covenant, if the Law and the Prophets was a math problem, Jesus says, I'm here to solve it. If the Old Covenant, if our Old Testament, if the Law and the Prophets was a jet, he says, I'm here to land it. And eventually I'm going to invite everyone, including the Jews, to disembark. That the law and the prophets, the old covenant, the Old Testament, had an expiration date. Something was about to change. In fact, the Old Testament approach to life, the Old Testament way was going away. It was about to expire. For truly, I tell you, he says, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop at this point in the message. Every time he shared this message. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And they all exhaled like, ah. And he smiled and said, until. That it's not gonna disappear. I'm not here to edit it. I'm not here to change it. I believe, just my personal opinion, this is the most overlooked preposition in the entire New Testament. And the fact that the church has overlooked this for so long, and I understand why, and I'm not throwing stones and I'm not being critical. We can talk about that on another day. But because we have overlooked this preposition and because we have overlooked the implications of what comes next, there has been so much confusion. There has been so much legalism. There has been so much gracelessness. There has been so much faithlessness. There's been so much loss of faith. In fact, the fact that you have not been taught what's on the other side of this preposition is one of the reasons perhaps that you lost faith, that you walked away from faith or that you're reaching for the door to leave faith. 
He said, none of it's going to disappear, none of it's going to change until, until everything is accomplished, until everything is in place. And then it will disappear along with everything associated with it. And that was unimaginable. <laughs> Jesus, wait, Jesus. I mean, you're good. I mean, you're good. You are. But, okay, you're telling us that our whole understanding of God and our whole approach to God and everything associated with our covenant with God and the temple system and the sacrificial system, you're saying all of that at some point is going to disappear? That's impossible. 40 years later, on August 6th, A.D. 70, August 6th, A.D. 70, at the hands of Titus and the Roman 10th Legion, ancient Judaism went out of business and it has never been practiced since. You can't practice it without a temple. More on that next week. Do not miss next week. Now, here's the point of all this. And here's the point Jesus was eventually going to make. This is the point that the Apostle Paul would look back later and explain to the rest of the Gentile world. That Jesus came to introduce something new to the world and for the world. But in order for that to happen, Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel. In other words, he was born to obey the law that God had given Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He was born under the law, but he came into this world under the law to fulfill it to end it, and here's the good news, and to replace it, and to replace it with something new and something better, to replace it with a covenant that was not between a God and a nation, but to replace it with a covenant that was between God and all mankind. And all of this teaching and all of these parables were foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Here it comes, here it comes, get ready, here it comes. Change is in the wind. I'm not going to add on, I'm going to take out what is here and replace it with something new, something better, something broader, something for the whole world. A complete and total break was coming. And here's the thing. The early church, and by, when I say the early church, I mean after the resurrection when the church launched, the early church had a difficult time making a clean break from all that came before. In fact, we're gonna see 20, 25 years after the resurrection that the first century church, they're still struggling to say, wait a minute, like a complete, a complete and total break? And the 21st century church and the 20th century church and the 19th century church and the 18th century church has struggled with this as well. And this is why for many of you, it is so difficult to maintain faith in the world in which you live. Now, if there was any question in Jesus' audience that he really had come to contrast himself and to pitch himself against all that came before, this made it abundantly clear that they were not hearing things and that they weren't misunderstanding. Because six times in the message that we have recorded in Matthew, six times he says something like this. You have heard it said that it was, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you, you have heard it said that it was said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you, six times he repeats this. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, don't even hate. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, lust is a sin. You men, he said, you've heard it said that if you write your wife a certificate of divorce, then you're good to go with God. I say, not so fast. 
And over and over and over, he pitched himself against the law of Moses and his audience sat there and they thought, wait a minute. When you say you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you're talking about what Moses said. You, wait, wait, you can't set yourself up against Moses. Who do you think you are? You can't replace the lawgiver Moses. You can't replace the covenant maker Moses. It was Moses that came down from Mount Sinai with the 10 commandments and all 600 other commandments. It was Moses that said, our nation has a unique relationship and covenant with almighty God. And you're showing up and saying that somehow your law is better than his, that your law is to take the place of his. Who do you think you are? So he wraps up with something so simple and so powerful that we have been quoting it for 2,000 years. And he, he, he knew the tension in that audience every time he shared this message. And he says, so, so let me wrap it up for you. Let me make it simple. We've covered a lot of territory. I know you're confused. So let me, let me put the cookies on the lower shelf. Let's get down to the first rung of the ladder. So in everything, and I'm telling you, the crowd loved this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up, for this wraps up, for this is the bottom line of the law and the prophets. And I'm telling you, we're gonna see in a few weeks, this was foreshadowing that something new was coming, something far less complicated but something far more demanding. And when Jesus finished, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one having authority and not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, the temple leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the groups of people that didn't even get along found a common enemy with Jesus. And throughout the gospels, we find them coming to Jesus saying, the, the law says, the law says, the law says, Moses says, Moses says, what about the temple? What about the temple? On and on and on they would go. And one day, Matthew says, he finally just got fed up. And he turns to these religious leaders and he says something that when you read it in your English Bible, you go right by it. But I'm telling you, this was a showstopper. This was a game changer. This was an, oh my goodness, this guy has lost his mind. He turns to them, I think again with a grin on his face. And he says, I tell you, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Hey, Jesus, you've been in the sun too long. Okay, there's nothing greater than the temple. How can there be something great? Have you seen the temple? I mean, there is nothing greater than the temple. People come from miles around to see our fabulous temple that Herod rebuilt for us. There's no, wait, Jesus, if there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need the temple because the temple represents the presence of God. The temple represents the law. The, the temple represents reconciliation between God and the nation. The temple is where we house the Torah, the law. There is nothing greater than the temple. If there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need the temple any longer. To which Jesus would have smiled and said, just wait, just wait, just wait. Now, back to us. So, is this important? I mean, let me, let me put it this way. Is this important to 10th grade boys? 
Is this important to seniors in high school who are just thinking about, you know, I didn't get in my stretch school, so I'm going to get into my less stretch school, but then maybe I can get into my stretch school. And how long is this going to talk? How long has he been talking, you know? Is this important to 25-year-olds who just moved to our city and you got that first really, really good job and you're trying to figure it all out and, you know, your mom back in wherever, Madison, you know, or Rome, she wants to make sure you're in church so you came today so you could say you're here and you're wanting you. Is this important to you? Is this, is this important to seniors? You know, you're looking at the retirement thing. Is this important to new? Is this important? Yes. Let me tell you how important it is. It's important because once upon a time in our country and in the West, but let's just talk about us, because once upon a time in our country, people took the Bible seriously. They didn't read it, but they took it seriously. (laughs) I'm not going to read it, but don't put anything on top of it on grandmama's coffee table. (laughs) And the Bible was, you know, this was God's word. And then the internet. And now we have a generation of people who have so much misinformation about Christianity and so much misinformation specifically about the Bible. And people are leaving the faith in droves, especially teenagers and millennials. And all mom and dad have when they come home is, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. So once upon a time, what I'm about to tell you really wasn't all that important. But those days are long gone. And what Jesus said and what the New Testament represents that it has represented for, for 2,000 years that we've missed because it really wasn't all that important, it's more important than ever. Now, if you're a Christian and you love your church and you've got your church friends, everything's church, 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 and you know the hymns and you know most of your friends are Christians anyway, you, you, don't, you don't need this. But if you have seniors in high school, if you have college freshmen, if you care about your unchurched friends and your lost friends, if you're a person that grew up in church and you lost faith and every once in a while you come and you sit on the back row at a church because you, you just there's something that just draws you but you have so many unanswered questions, then what Jesus taught over and over and over, the fact that he came to introduce something new, it's real important. Because you see, you have heard it said, that if the Bible says it, that settles it. Jesus said that the worldview and the values from Exodus to Malachi had a shelf life and they came to an end. That he came to fulfill them, to land that plane, to bring it to an end and to introduce something brand new. And my friends, history proved him correct. You see, you've heard it said, there is no conflict between the Old and the New Testaments, the Old and the New Covenants. Jesus said, they are irreconcilable. So he closed the curtain on one and he ripped the curtain away on the other. The Old, and please don't miss this because I know I'll be misunderstood. The Old Covenant The Old Testament was a divinely created, a divinely inspired cocoon. And the purpose of that divinely inspired, divinely scripted cocoon, which was to to release the love and the light of God into the world for the world. This was Israel's purpose from the very beginning. But once the light of the world Once the love of God had been revealed, the cocoon is something we appreciate. It's part of the story. 
but it is to be left behind. You've heard it said, the Bible is our guide for life. Jesus never said that. Of course, when Jesus spoke, there was no the Bible. There was just the law and the prophets. But Jesus did say something about who would be your guide for life. Here's what he said. He said, look at me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am where you find life. Follow, and this drove the Jewish religious leaders crazy. Follow me. And then, in the end, he made this unmistakably clear. And we've missed this for years because it really wasn't all that important, but it's important now. It's been important for about 30 or 40 years, but it's more important than ever. In the very end, and if you grew up in church, you've read this so many times. You've heard it preached on so many times. If you taught Sunday school, you've taught this so many times. If you left the church, when I read these words, you're gonna go, oh yeah, I remember that. After he was crucified, after he was raised from the dead and was seen, he gathers with his followers and he gives them a farewell address. And I wanna read it to you. And now I want you to listen to it through the ears of someone who's been introduced to the idea that Jesus did not come to continue something. He came to replace something. Then Jesus came, the text says, Matthew tells us he was there. Then Jesus came to them and he said, and who would say this? All authority. Remember when he taught, they were amazed because he spoke with authority. When he, when he went into the temple and he cleaned the temple, and I wish we had time to look at those texts, when he goes in and just creates chaos in the temple. And when he, this is so powerful. When he created chaos in the temple, the temple leaders did not say to him, hey, what do you think you're doing? They did not ask him that question. Do you know what they asked him? They said, who do you think you are? Because he spoke and he moved and he behaved with an authority never seen before in the history of mankind. And he stood on the hill that day with the men and women who'd seen him crucified and now back from the dead. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when you're standing in front of someone who you'd seen die and now they're alive and they say they have all authority, you just go with it. (laughs) All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not Moses, Not the law, not the temple, not the Ten Commandments. And this rattled his audience, except they had seen him die. He says, therefore, since I am the embodiment of the authority of God, here's what I want you to do. Matthew, write this down. Therefore, in light of that, I want you to go. Now, this is gonna be different. This is gonna be odd. This is gonna be uncomfortable. This is gonna be in contrast to everything you've been taught since you were little boys and girls. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. Oh, what if we just stick around here? No, but I understand that in the old days you were taught to secure your borders and expel the foreigners. I know that's what you grew up thinking. I know you've been praying for a Messiah that would secure the borders and expel the foreigners. I'm saying to you, something new has happened. It is time that you cross your borders and you take the love of God to foreigners wherever you find them. And you instruct them on what it means to follow me. And you are to do for them what John the Baptist did for you and what my disciples did for you. You are to baptize them. 
That is, you were to ask them to identify with me and my message. And you're to baptize them in the name of, and see if we grew up in church, we know how this ends. In the name of, we end, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We've memorized that. For the Jews in his audience, someone was conspicuously missing from the list. And you'll baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and not of Moses and not of the prophets and of the Holy Spirit of God. A lot of you are raised like me. You've heard it said, the Bible is our guide for life. Jesus said something very different. He said, and after you've baptized them, you're to teach them to obey everything. In the Bible? No. In the law? No. In the Ten Commandments? No. You're to teach them. And my friends, this is so important. Do you know who them is? Them is you. Because eventually they would cross their borders. (laughs) Come on, eventually. They would take this message all over the world. Eventually, this persecuted band of nobodies would topple an empire. And they wouldn't do it with territory or military. They would do it with the love of God and the light of life, who is Jesus. And Jesus said, look at me, guys. I want you to teach them everything I have commanded you. Well, what did Jesus command? Don't miss week 11. (laughs) Now, here's the point. I'm done. This is what I want you to understand. A new era had begun. It was the end of something old and something important. It was the end of something old and something necessary. It was the end, it was the end of the context that would release into the world the light of God and the love of God. That Jesus replaced everything that Moses and Solomon put in place. And the reason this is important and the reason this is especially important for some of you, for those of you who have lost faith or have begun to doubt because of something in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, because of something you were taught in school or something that you've sort of found on the internet and it sort of confirms your suspicions, here's why this is extraordinarily good news for you. It means that Christianity can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the old covenant because it is a standalone, brand new message for the entire world. And it stands straighter this way. It stands more defensible this way. And it has stood the test of time and the test of an empire this way. And if this is also confusing for you, and I can understand that, and if it seems a bit wrong and heretical, then you can understand, you can appreciate exactly how Jesus' first century audience felt when he began to take away the old and replace it with something better and something new. Because after all, Moses was their guy. And after all, the Bible is our book. So don't miss next week. 
Well, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content on this message and all the messages that we're doing between now and Easter, I want to invite you again to go to 90.today. That's 90.today and sign up. At 90.today, you'll find a host of different ways to engage deeper with our church and the extraordinary life of Jesus. We'll see you next time.